Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 28? We will read verses 10 through 19. It's on page 39 in the Bibles provided for you. Uh, we're using the Old Testament lectionary text today, which is the story of Jacob and his dream at Bethel. Uh, I've said this before, Jacob is probably my favorite Old Testament character. Uh, so I was really excited when I was doing my worship planning and I saw that Jacob is uh, one of the texts, one of the lectionary texts for my final sermons with you. Um, so today we're going to be looking at uh, Jacob's story. Um, next week we're going to do something different, but then on my final Sunday uh, we'll be going back to the Jacob story, which I'm very excited about because he's kind of my favorite. Um, so at this point where we start reading uh, in the Jacob story, Jacob has lied to his father Isaac and he has stolen the birthright from his brother Esau and now he is on the run because he has made his family very, very angry. Genesis 28, beginning at verse 10. Listen to God's word. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called that place Bethel. This is the word of the Lord. So the story of Jacob is a very surprising story. There's so many twists and turns and unexpected events. Let me point out three surprising things in the story of Jacob. Three confounding, puzzling things. First of all, Jacob is a thief. To me, the most remarkable thing about Jacob is that uh, for a patriarch... For one of the pillars of the faith, for a stalwart of the faith, he's just not a very good guy. He doesn't make a lot of good choices. He's incredibly deceitful. So in the, uh, in the story previous to this one that we read, Jacob tricks his blind, dying father 
and he steals the birthright from his older brother and he runs away with something that doesn't belong to him. Jacob is a thief. You might read his story and say that he's narcissistic. You might say that he uses people. You might say that he's deeply insecure. All of those things are true. If Jacob was someone in your life, you would have to work really hard to love him. Jacob was hard to love. Uh, very early in my ministry career, we're talking 15 years ago, I preached a sermon on Jacob because, like I said, he's one of my favorites. And in that sermon that I preached on Jacob, I called him God's favorite loser. <laughs> and after I preached that sermon, a member of this church, who's no longer a part of this church, but a member of this church came up to me and was very upset because I had used that term, that phrase, to describe one of the patriarchs, one of the stalwarts of the faith. And so when this person confronted me on that, I very quickly apologized, very, very quickly. But now I wish I hadn't. I wish I hadn't apologized, because that's one of the things that makes this story so wonderful, so remarkable, that at least at this point in his life, Jacob was a terrible person. He was a terrible person, and yet God loved him. God couldn't help himself. God just kept blessing him and kept blessing him and blessing him for no reason at all. If we try to turn Jacob into a saint, then we miss the whole point of this story. You know what I mean? So I hereby reinstate my title for Jacob, God's favorite loser. That's the first surprise in the story. Jacob is a thief. The second surprise in the story is that Jacob is lost, that he's in the middle of nowhere. So Jacob's on the run. He's running away from home. Uh, he's not welcome in Beersheba, and he's never been to Haran, and he doesn't really know where to go. So where does the text say that he ends up? It's in verse 11. It says, Jacob reaches a certain place. A certain place. Literally in Hebrew... It says, the verb is, he strikes. He strikes upon a certain place. Robert Alter is a, a scholar of Hebrew literature. He talks about how um, that's an idiomatic phrase. It's a, it's a common phrase in ancient Hebrew, uh, and it meant to be in the middle of nowhere. To strike upon a certain place means to be in the middle of nowhere. So the point is, there's nothing identifiable about this location. Jacob just struck upon it, and Alter says, Alter says, it's as if this location is so remote and so anonymous that he's stumbling over the nothingness. He's stumbling over, he's tripping over the amount of nothing that is in this place. Jacob could not be anymore in the middle of nowhere, which is very surprising. Because in the story before, Jacob stole the birthright from his brother. And in doing so, he inherited all of his father's property. Jacob is a guy who owned a ton of land. At this time in history, he was one of the wealthiest landowners in the whole world. And yet, here he is, very ironically, very surprisingly, lost in the middle of nowhere without a place. 
The third surprise I've already alluded to, the third surprise is that for some inexplicable reason, God just really loves Jacob. I don't get it. You don't get it. Nobody gets it. Nobody understands it. God just really, really loves Jacob. Even though he's a rotten thief, even though he's in the middle of nowhere and he has nothing, God comes to him so graciously in a dream and he lovingly, graciously tells this rotten thief that he's going to give him the whole world and that he's going to bless him and that he's going to bless the whole world through him. He is just the luckiest guy. Jacob is a loser, but for some reason he is God's favorite loser. Why? This is quite interesting. Maybe you know. The name Jacob means heel grabber. Heel grabber. And it's a perfect name for him because throughout his whole life, throughout the story of Jacob, he keeps grabbing for things. He's grabbing for things. He's constantly grabbing. He's always after something. He's always conning for something. He's always looking for something. Uh, he's, he's grabbing for his father's affection. He's grabbing for that blessing that was supposed to go to his brother. He's grabbing for the content of his, of his inheritance. He's grabbing and grabbing and grabbing. But then, notice... At what point in God's, or what point in Jacob's story does he finally have an encounter with God? At what point do things finally start to materialize for him? It's when he gives up and he lays down and he falls asleep. Like a toddler who's just too worked up, throwing a temper tantrum and finally gives up, lays down, and goes to sleep. Everything changes as soon as the grabber stops grabbing. Here's what's going on. God is establishing a pattern with Jacob that he had also established with Abraham and Isaac, his father and grandfather. God blessed Abraham and Isaac, but he did so on his own terms. God did so at his own instigation. Neither of Jacob's fathers ever grabbed for anything. They, they, put them, they never tried to put themselves in a position where they would deserve something. They never tried to put themselves in a position where they could grab something. No, no, no. God, on God's terms, initiated blessing with Abraham and Isaac. And there's something very, very uh, significant about that. Jacob tried to be the instigator. He tried to be the initiator. Jacob was going to make life happen for himself. He was going to plot and plan and grab, and he was going to make that blessing happen. But guess what? That's not the way God works. God insists on being the initiator of blessing. God insists that blessing cannot be earned, cannot be bought, cannot be deserved, cannot be grabbed. Which is why, in the end, Jacob is just the right person for God to use. 
he is just the right person for God to use to show the world the nature of his love. Jacob is perfect because he is so obviously imperfect. Because the whole point of the story of Jacob is to make us say, this guy, God? This guy? Are you kidding me? Have you seen this guy? He's a narcissist. He's a thief. He's insecure. He's a liar. And God is like, exactly. Isn't he perfect? He's just my type. He's just detestable enough to help me show the world that I am the one who initiates blessing. And my love, my blessing, my grace cannot be bought, cannot be earned, cannot be grabbed, cannot be deserved. The whole point of the Jacob story is so that people like you and people like me, with all of our shame and with all of our guilt, And with all of our secret shame and all of our secret guilt would look at Jacob in his story and say, well, if God can be head over heels with this guy, then maybe there's hope for someone like me. Because God's love is never earned. It's only ever received. Can I geek out for a second? Will you geek out with me? Verse 17, uh, Jacob says, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. This is the gate of heaven. That's very significant that Jacob says, This is the gate of heaven. Way back in Genesis chapter 11, There's a story called the Tower of Babel. Do you know the story of the Tower of Babel? Uh, In the story of the Tower of Babel, a, a bunch of people decide that it would be a really good idea to build a gigantic tower that reached so high that if they were to climb all the way to the top of that tower, they would reach the gate of heaven. That's what it was called. The goal was to reach the gate of heaven. So the idea was that building this tower, building the Tower of Babel, would be the greatest human achievement in all of history. It would literally, through human effort and ingenuity, put human beings on the same level as God, that we would earn our way, we would build our way to achieve equality with God. But what happened to the Tower of Babel? No go. Why? God foiled it. He foiled it. He got right in the middle of it and he said, "Uh uh-uh, this is not going to happen. Human beings will not build their way up to me. But now, 17 chapters later, we see that there is a gate of heaven. That there is a stairway, to, but it's not, it's not a stairway to heaven built through human achievement. It's a stairway from heaven built by God himself. The gate of heaven isn't up in the air on top of a tower. The gate of heaven is down here in the middle of nowhere. Do you get the difference? 
God just blesses us. We don't earn it. We don't build it. We don't deserve it. We don't make it happen. We don't build a tower to God. We are God's favorite losers. And that's the way it will always be. His love is unearned and unconditional. And here's what's interesting about that. So in the, in the story of the Tower of Babel, the assumption is that God is up there, right? That heaven is up there. That heaven is up and, and beyond us and outside of us and far away from us. But in verse 17, something clicks for Jacob. And he says, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The gate of heaven isn't way up there at the top of some tower that people might build or way at the top of some achievement that I might climb. No, no, no. The gate of heaven isn't something I don't, I, that I have to grab or something that I have to possess in order to have it. No, the gate of heaven comes to us. And so he says, how awesome is this place? How awesome is this place? Now, what does he mean, this place? What place is he talking about? Is Jacob talking about a very specific place between Beersheba and Haran? in ancient Mesopotamia, where if you go there, there's a magic portal that leads you to heaven? Nope. Remember, when Jacob uh, got to the place where he was, he struck upon a certain place. The storyteller in Genesis goes to great lengths to remind us that he is in no place at all. He is stumbling over the nothingness of this place. He's stumbling over the, the, the unfamiliarity of this place. So the implication is that not only is this place the gate of heaven, but every place is the gate of heaven. So if this nondescript, non-place in the middle of nowhere is the gate of heaven, then every place is the gate of heaven. If God is in the middle of nowhere then he's also in the middle of everywhere. If there's a gate of heaven in a desolate place, then there is a gate of heaven in every place. There is nothing special about this place where there is the gate of heaven. See, Jacob had been looking at his life, looking at his possessions and his inheritance with a view that was far too narrow he was grabbing and grabbing and grabbing for things and angling himself to receive things. But it wasn't until he finally stopped grabbing. It wasn't until he finally fell asleep that God was able to show him that blessing cannot be grabbed. Blessing cannot be earned. Blessing cannot be deserved. And the gate of heaven isn't up there. The gate of heaven is everywhere. Even in the middle of nowhere. We tend to look at our lives and to look at the whole world with a vision that is far too narrow. We become obsessed with earning and possessing and grabbing, but the most valuable things cannot be bought, cannot be sold, cannot be grabbed, cannot be earned. This is why 
we baptized Connell this morning because that little boy had nothing to give back to God. Nothing. So before he got his first words, with which he will someday praise God, before he got his first allowance, from which he will someday tithe to God, before he had literally anything to give back to God, before any of that could happen, God says, you're mine. I called it. No take backs. It's done. Before he could even have a conscious memory, we're going to have to tell him about it. We're going to have to, he, he was barely even here this morning, he's so young. Mine. God says. Heaven is not some far-off place to which we have to climb. Heaven comes to us. You know who that makes me think of? Jesus. The greatest expression of God's love came to us. The most wonderful part of heaven came to us. More specifically, thinking about Jesus and his ministry, he came to the losers. The losers. I make no apologies. He came to the losers. And he shared space with the world's most desperate, most marginalized, most undeserving people with whom you and I should want to associate ourselves, by the way. We should feel right at home with those folks. He went to places, Jesus went to places that at least socially speaking were in the middle of nowhere. Nazareth? What good comes from Nazareth? Exactly. What narratives do you keep playing in your head about achieving, about earning, about having, about grabbing, about controlling? Maybe it's time to lay down and go to sleep so that God can start to do his work. What trauma, what religious trauma have you experienced that makes you think that you are permanently and primarily bad and broken and evil and undeserving of God's love? Try telling that to God. He doesn't buy it. He doesn't buy it. What theology have you embraced that suggests that there are tiers of people who are ranked on their per perceived obedience to a certain set of laws. It's not how this works. You are God's favorite loser. And God has come to be with you. All we do is receive. All we do is receive. All we do is surrender. Thanks be to God. Pray with me.
Our Father who art in heaven, we thank you for bringing heaven to us. We thank you for Jesus' presence with us here today. We thank you for the ways that he stepped over the best places and the best people to find his favorite losers. We pray, God, that we would find ourselves as good company with those who are often maligned and taken for granted. Pray that we would open our field of vision to see a blessing that is so much better than anything which we could achieve. We pray that we would surrender our lives completely to receiving your grace and your love. Help us, Father, to see things the way that you see them. Help us to see things like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.